0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City.
2: Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff, gentlemen. Hello.
0: Hello. Hello. Hey Max. What do you have exciting for us this week? What do I
2: have exciting for you this week? I have this exciting. It's Lulu Garcia Navarro. She is uh, as you guys probably know, longtime NPR reporter and host. She was a conflict reporter for many years, reported from Iraq and Kosovo and all kinds of places. And then she came back. She was a host of Weekend Edition at NPR. And now she has a podcast with the New York Times. It just debuted last week. It's called First Person. It's in the opinion section of the New York Times. It's an interview show. She's good at interviewing. And so we talked about that. But we also talked about the switch from being out in the field to being behind a desk We talked about all kinds of things, and it was enjoyable for me.
0: We are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us produce this show. Thanks to everyone at Vox. Wait, I have something else I want to say before we end this introduction. Let's hear it. Evan has a new podcast out. It's called Persona. Evan, give the full title. Persona, the French Deception. I want you to go search for that right now, subscribe to it, and help the long-form bump Continue. I'm just going to keep this bump going as long as possible. Persona in podcast apps everywhere.
2: Thank you, Aaron. And now here's Max with Lulu Garcia Navarro. Hi, Lulu. Hi. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
3: I am so excited to be here.
2: I'm about to do something that I've never done before. It's the first time, which is I'm going to quote a press release.
3: Oh, oh no. Really? That is exciting. <laughs> I, I mean,
2: it's either exciting or <laughs> terribly lame, but I'm going to do it because I don't think okay. it's terribly lame. I got a press release mm-hmm. about your new podcast okay. it's called First Person. Mm-hmm. It's with the New York Times. I have many questions for you about it. But at the top of the press release was a question, which is, if you are asked to explain your life what would you say? And uh, that's, that's where I'm going to start. If you were yeah. asked to explain your life, Lulu, what would you say?
3: Well, I would say that if that was the only question, that would be a really hard question to answer. <laughs> that's it.
2: I'm done now. You, just, now. you Now you just talk for like 45 minutes and we're good. For 45 minutes. Yeah.
3: I think that's the the start of the provocative idea behind this podcast, which is what leads you to believe what you believe what is it that has taken you to a certain point in your life where you kind of understand the world in a certain way and I always found in my interviews the most interesting part was when I would say why do you think that because often especially in news interviews you're kind of getting through the business, right? They're sort of telling you the thing that they came to tell you about whatever it is that's in the news. And maybe if you have some time at the end, you'll sort of try and get a bit of backstory. And the thing that I've always been so engaged in is that whenever you ask that, there is often a sort of surprising, provocative, personal story about why someone is invested in whatever it is that they're talking about. And so I think that is where that particular idea comes from. This podcast, though, does something a little bit different, which is talking to real people. And I hate that word. It's such journalism speak, (laughs) right? Real people, because nobody else is real. Right,
2: no one else counts.
3: Nobody else counts except like whatever the imaginary real person is. But what I mean by that is just people who aren't practiced necessarily in the art of being able to spew out their life in a cohesive, linear, clear manner in the way that we journalists like, you know, where Mm -hmm. it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it perfectly wraps up in a bow, and we're all like, yay, we understand. And so if you ask anybody, what was it that got you to this place, unless you've written a book about it or an essay, you might really not know the answer to that question. And I've found in doing these interviews that people have – kind of gone, huh, I'm not sure. Let me think about that for a moment.
2: Yeah. I mean, my goal in interviews all the time is just to get people thinking out loud. Right. And the more interviews that people do, the harder it is to get them to do that, I think.
3: Totally. That was a good first question. You totally threw me for a loop. I was like, if I had to explain my life, you know, in the service of what?
2: (laughs) Do you think you're getting (laughs) off the hook that easy? Because I have follow-ups around that.
3: Good. Hit me.
2: <laughs> if part of the idea of what you're trying to ask people is like, where does the motivation to do the thing that you do come from? Where does the origin of this belief that you have come from? What is that for you? I mean, you have had this decorated career. You've done reporting all over the world. Why is this what you do?
3: I mean, then we really would have to go back no go on we do i'll tell you i'll tell you i'll tell you why i'm going to answer this but first i'm going to say this thing which is one of the things in doing this podcast that we spend a lot of time talking about is where you start the clock you have to start with a moment what is the beginning point of your conversation and for some people it goes back to their childhood i could answer that question and say when i was a kid i was growing up in miami and i was a latina And I actually didn't realize that not everyone was Cuban around me. (laughs) I I didn't grow up as a minority. I grew up in Miami and everyone spoke Spanish. And it was surprising to me later in life that actually I was a minority in this country. (laughs) And, you know, I was always a kid who liked to ask questions and talk to people. I could start the clock there Mm -hmm. or I could start the clock and say, you know, when the New York Times called me and said, hey... There's this thing that we're thinking of doing where we're going to delve into why people think the way they do. That to me was so intriguing, because I just feel like at this particular moment, no one wants to listen to anybody else. You know, nobody necessarily really wants to know what people's opinions are, where they come from, because at this point, we're so polarized and entrenched. And I find that that space, what you're talking about, where people are thinking out loud, and they're wrestling with something, and they're trying to figure it out, it's much more interesting than the spaces in which we find ourselves now where everyone's like, oh, I know what I think. And more than that, I know what you think. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what I mean by starting the clock. So like there's a bunch of reasons why I wanted to do this. But for me, it's sort of the culmination of the stuff that I've done for a long time, which is try and talk to people about how their lives intersect in a bigger story about our world.
2: Do you think at all about not just the people you're talking to, but the audience they are talking to? I wonder if you're thinking about the audience that the Times reaches and how much diversity of thought is in there. So if part of the idea is to have people really listen in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise, are you um, bringing different viewpoints to the choir?
3: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's very intentionally the point. Part of... The challenge of having put together this podcast, and it has been challenging, is really trying to find viewpoints that are going to surprise people, that are going to make them think about something slightly differently, that are going to complicate their view of the world. And so, yeah, I think that is very much the intention. I mean, it's hard, right? It's hard because the people who will gravitate towards certain types of podcasts, certain types of, you know, newspapers are going to maybe have a perceived uniformity of thought. But I think the goal is always to complicate that. And mm-hmm. and I think that's what good opinion does. It it really tries to kind of take your view of the world and say, wait, have you thought about this, though? Or do you know about this? Or can you put yourself in somebody else's shoes?
2: Do you enjoy it getting more complicated for you? Is that fun or uncomfortable?
3: I think it's uncomfortable. I mean, I think change is hard. I think trying to push yourself beyond your limits is hard. I think it's completely necessary. I spent a lot of my career working in war zones, (laughs) you know, some of the most extreme places in the world. And what I learned from that is that you have to sort of push yourself because Life is full of challenges and you kind of either meet them head on or they're going to overtake you one way or the other. So for me, I actually like the complicated space, the gray spaces, the spaces that aren't super black or white.
2: Can we take the clock back there and and talk a little bit about that time in your life? Was that always the goal to be a war reporter?
3: No, it wasn't the goal. I didn't know that that was a thing that I was going to do. At all, actually. It took me a while to figure out that I was going to be a journalist. I started late. After college, I went backpacking, and I found myself in Southeast Asia teaching English in Cambodia. And I tried to get a job at the Phnom Penh Post, which was an English language paper there, and the Cambodia Daily, which was an English language paper there. And they both looked at me like, "I, what are you doing here? You have no experience. <laughs> and they were right. I had never done my college paper. I had never done my high school paper. I had not had any experience. But what intrigued me about it was as I was sort of traveling in the world, I realized that I actually wanted to understand what I was doing there, <laughs> that I didn't after a while enjoy just the experience of kind of floating through in the way that you do and not really understanding the culture or having a purpose really in being there other than your own sort of journey of self-fulfillment.
2: You wanted to complicate it a little bit.
3: I wanted to complicate it a little bit. And so I ended up sort of going to London and then realizing that I had no idea, again, how to become a journalist. Like, I just didn't have any contacts in the industry. I didn't know even how to start. But I did know that I wanted to be involved in international reporting. Like, that was the thing that drew me. That was the thing that I was really fascinated by. And so I ended up going back to school to do a journalism course in London, which was very vocational. And because it is so vocational in the UK at that time, I took a broadcast course, and in the UK, they have a wonderful tradition of audio, back then radio, and they didn't have a TV studio because it was a kind of public institution that couldn't afford a TV studio, and so I got into radio that way by default, and then I had a wonderful mentor at the Associated Press in my first internship who kind of took me on as a freelancer and then the Kosovo War happened and she had been doing this for a long time and she said, do you want to go? And I said, yeah, I want to go. And that was my first exposure to that kind of reporting and it just gripped me and that's what took me through most of my career until I became a host.
1: Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course.
2: What was that like, showing up in Kosovo? Crazy. How old are you?
3: I mean, I was in my late 20s. Like I said, I started late in this job. So I was like 28. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind. I had no idea how to function. I didn't know really what I was supposed to be doing. And then also, it was just overwhelming. It was refugees pouring over the border into Albania, which I had never been to. And I was really struggling to figure out what this was and what my role as a journalist was. And at the same time, it was incredibly exciting because it felt like all of a sudden that purpose that I had been looking for while I was wandering around, (laughs) you know, it felt pretty clear to me there what my purpose was. Practically speaking, I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to be doing as a journalist, but like the big idea behind it, I fully understood, which was I was there to tell and report on what was happening and to make sure that people understood what really was happening there on the ground.
2: And while that was scary, it was also like exhilarating.
3: Yeah. It's a weird thing about covering conflict, which is that we wrap ourselves often in the mantle of reflected heroism, I would say, which is, We're there to tell a story and amplify the voices and do all these things and there is real risk to it. That is the driving force of it, there's no question. But I would challenge anyone who does it not to say that there also is something just incredibly exhilarating about it because it feels so essential and it feels like you are at the heart of something really, really important and it can give you an amazing amount of meaning especially in the work that you do and so it just feels like you are at the center of something
2: yeah there's a high to it
3: there is a high for sure it's addictive more than that it's addictive
2: and you like chased it for a long time
3: you know i don't know that i chased it i was given it like i did well in that assignment and then i got sent to columbia in the middle of their civil war And then Afghanistan happened and I got a call and I said, do you want to go to Kabul?
2: Was there ever one of those things that you said no to?
3: No, no, never, never, never.
2: And when you said you did well.
3: What does doing well mean? Yeah. Is
2: that that like a thing you can get better at?
3: Yeah. I mean, can't you? Conflict reporting? Any kind of reporting. Can't you get better at it? Like, yes, I think, my goodness, the things that I know now and the things that I didn't know then could <laughs> could fill the Grand Canyon.
2: What are those? I mean, what did you learn? How do you get better at that specific type of this work?
3: So I think the way that you get better at that specific work is not about the craft, although that's definitely part of it, and I could talk to you about the craft. But what I would say it's the sensibility. It's in fact the opposite of what you think, which is you learn over time that good conflict reporting is less about the front lines and more about what's happening away from the battle and how the forces are shifting in a society and how the conflict is breaking down certain groups and reconfiguring places. And you kind of learn to figure that out over time. And you also, I think, really learn a ton, a shit ton of empathy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think at the beginning, it's really overwhelming. It's a sensory overload. And then once you know kind of what you're doing in these spaces, you really learn to kind of focus in on the quieter, literally less bombastic places. What are happening to the mothers? What are happening behind the closed doors in the village? Like what what is going on? that you're not seeing that's not just playing out in front of you with guns and and people trying to blow each other up. And so that for me like became part of the draw over time. You know, but I'll be honest with you. I lived in the places that I covered. I didn't just go in and and drop in for a couple of weeks and then go back and live in wherever London or New York. I mean, I was living in Iraq for years. I lived in Jerusalem for years, you know. I was in Kabul for a long time and Latin America also, you know, a different kind of war, but a conflict all the same. So it's a different experience when you're living in a place than when you're dropping in and you can leave.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's part of what I've always struggled to understand about that work is just how you wrap your head that quickly around dynamics that are that complex. You know, like the parachute in for correspondent things seems almost impossibly hard.
3: It is hard. It is hard. And I respect the people who do that work. And I would almost maybe say, I don't know, could it be healthier to not be living in the place that you're covering for years? And it's like completely crazy. There is a pejorative connotation to the parachute journalist. But a lot of the people who do this work, you know, are repeatedly going into the same places. They just have families or they choose to, you know, live elsewhere for sanity's sake. That wasn't the kind of experience that I had.
2: You weren't particularly interested in in insanity?
3: i mean i suffered from post traumatic stress disorder i had i mean i've been very public about my struggles covering conflict and living in conflict i mean the thing that kept me sane for most of it was that i actually had my partner with me my now husband my then boyfriend was also a war correspondent and so we lived there together and so i had a measure of stability in having kind of a a close relationship someone who was there to kind of see me through it. I think oftentimes what can happen when you go to these places is, he, is that you feel very unmoored from the things that make you you outside of this space.
2: Can you say a little bit more about that? Can you help me understand what, what...
3: What that means? Yeah,
2: like what goes away?
3: Oh, gosh, everything. If you have to wake up in the morning and the choices that you make are going to decide whether you live or die it's a really, really, really heavy thing, you know? And I don't say that lightly. Mm -hmm. It just means like I have a job to do there, which is covering a war. Covering a war is dangerous. And it's not only I'm risking my life, I am working with other people who are from that place and I'm risking their life. And yet I still have to do it because that's my job. And so... You're having to make these decisions all the time that seem so crazy to anyone else, right? Like you're living your life, and most people wake up and decide, "Hey, am I going to go to Starbucks, or <laughs> right, right. am I going <laughs> to, you know, before I hit the gym and, and, Bagel and head or to work fruit this
2: morning?" Yeah,
3: I don't know. And so, like, but the the thing that you're waking up to is like, okay, I have to go report in this place where there has just been an attack, and How am I going to get there safely or as safely as possible? Who am I going to bring with me? What route am I going to take? I mean, it's just like a whole different series of assessments that you're making. And so what ends up happening, and I'm not saying to everyone, but to me, (laughs) is that all that other stuff the stuff that makes up you, the stuff about the Starbucks and the hitting the gym and that oh, I'm going to talk to my best friend and I'm going to go have dinner, like the stuff that makes life pleasurable and fun and makes you connected to your community, that stuff kind of recedes into the background because you feel like every moment is so high stakes. Mm. And so that's why a lot of correspondents who cover this stuff and I saw Clarissa talking about this with you on the show, Yeah, that it's really hard when you come back to kind of reconnect with people's regular stuff. I mean, we used to be bummers at dinner parties. You know, yeah. we'd come back from Iraq, and we'd be like, the war, it's terrible. Do you know how terrible it is? <laughs> and, like, people want that for, like, one minute. Right. And then they're like, dude, yeah, but, like, I just want to have a drink and talk about, you know, the latest Marvel movie. And so you can feel really disconnected. And it's hard to find your way back to that. It's hard to find your way, like, who am I in the world if I'm not covering this war? You can start to float away Hmm. from all the things that give you joy and connection and can anchor you.
2: It's interesting that you say joy and bring up that interview with Clarissa, because what I heard her saying about it was like, i used to feel guilty about the things that brought me joy and now i hold on to them for dear life and they're the things that make it possible to do this work but what i hear you saying is like if you're living there and you're dealing with the stakes of those choices day after day after day after day after day that that weight can get pretty heavy
3: Oh my God, it's overwhelming. And then you don't find joy anymore. And that's what happened to me. That was my journey towards post-traumatic stress disorder. I would spend two months to three months in Iraq. This is when post-traumatic stress disorder first reared its head. And then we would get a break and we get to go somewhere, right? For a month or two weeks, depending. And I didn't have sort of a fixed address because I was living in Iraq and so me and my then boyfriend would travel. And it would be normal that we would come out and the first couple of days we'd feel really exhausted and down. Because you know the physical stress, the mental stress is as you can imagine considerable but then we'd always go somewhere fun yeah, and you'd feel buoyant and you'd eat well and you'd drink well and you know and you'd feel like the cares would dissipate. It came to be that two days would pass, three days would pass, four days would pass, and that weight was still there, and then maybe it would lift, and then it just didn't lift. Mm -hmm. And not only did it not lift, but I would find myself on the streets of a normal place where nothing bad was happening, and I would feel this incredible anxiety, this dread would just come over me like something terrible was about to happen. And I wouldn't feel like that in war zones. I would feel that only in places where there was no threat. And what I came to realize is that I was suppressing so much of our natural instinct and our healthy instinct to fear <laughs> in the places where I really should have felt it, mm. and that it was manifesting itself where I felt safe to express it. And so, but what that ends up doing to your life, as you can imagine, isn't great.
2: Sounds like totally healthy and balanced.
3: Really yeah, good. totally. Right. Yeah. You're like in the upside down world. You're like, <laughs> wait, where I should be feeling afraid. I'm feeling completely like this is the surroundings where I know how to function. And in the normal places, I'm feeling terrified and like I don't know what to do. And so that's what happens to some of us.
2: And is that what led you to go and sort of take a more office job?
3: A more office job. So, no, no. What ended up happening was this. Because I didn't take a more office job. I went to Brazil. But what led me out of the Middle East and covering, you know, full-on bang-bang wars was that my husband got a call from his foreign editor one fine morning asking him to sneak into Syria. And I just was like we're done. I don't want this to be my life anymore.
2: Hmm. It was like that. Like, it was it was that quick. That's
3: what it is. But that's what it is. That's what the job is. The yeah. job is that. Like, if you're covering these things, the job is, how are you going to get to the worst place in the world as quickly as possible? And for me, it just kind of was like, I don't think this is super great. Mm-hmm. And so I got pregnant. I mean, not because of that. I wanted a child. And then once I was pregnant... You know, I was still in the Middle East. I was still covering stuff. But once that happened, I just decided that wasn't going to be what I did anymore. I was kind of done with that particular thing.
2: Do you miss it at all?
3: Yes and no. So when Ukraine happened, you know, I immediately was like, I want to (laughs) go. It's that old tug, right? It's that thing that says, I know how to do this and I know how to do it really well. But I think at a certain point, I mean, at least I have to be like, you know, that's my hubris speaking. Mm -hmm. That's my vanity speaking. That's a lot of stuff speaking that maybe isn't necessarily true. Do I need to be there? Is there something that actually is compelling about me being there? And so ultimately... I didn't go. I would have gone, but I didn't. And I think I now really think about why I'm doing things and what is the purpose of that in a way that I didn't used to. And, that, and I guess that's it. It's not to say that I wouldn't go back and cover this stuff, but I feel less compelled to be in those spaces now. I find the intellectual battlefields just as compelling. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's what this is now. That's what this podcast is. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I'm not just saying that, I really do. It took me a while. When I became a host at NPR, it was hard. It was so hard.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's what I was gonna ask about. Like, was it boring?
3: No, it wasn't boring. What it was was like, oh my God, I'm so used to being physically unconstrained to wake up in the morning and every day is different and I get to decide what that day looks like. At that point, I'd been living in Brazil for four years. And it's like, am I going to go to the Amazon? Am I going to go cover the World Cup? Or, you know, am I going to go do the Donkey Festival? There's an enormous variety to the work. And you get to decide what your day looks like. And there's a lot of physical kind of moving around. And then all of a sudden... I had never sat in a studio like this. And I was like, wait a second. What is this?
2: (laughs) I got to come back here tomorrow?
3: I got to come back. No, it was horrible. And also the office culture thing was like super hard for me. I mean, I didn't have any clothes to wear. I didn't know what people wore to the office. I was feral. Listen, I had been covering things in countries like cuba authoritarian regimes in like the middle east and i was used to being tapped and followed and expelled from countries and so when i was first a host i was like you know looking under the desk to see if i was like if if there was like a tapping mechanism
2: i think that's where my boring question came from is just like if you go from being expelled you know in cuba to being like did you hear what Frank said at that meeting? Like I just that just seems boring to me. I
3: don't know. But wait a second, but this is the difference. The job though, what I came to understand was so much more intellectually freeing. I got to roam so much more widely. So the Lulu that was the Lulu who was doing these things in these spaces was like this very serious Lulu who was covering these very serious things. <laughs> And I wasn't really able to indulge my love of, for example, science fiction and fantasy books, romance novels, <laughs> celebrity culture. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that makes up me. And so when you ask me, like, we started with this question, like, how would you explain your life? I would say that I'm more than this thing that I did. And actually becoming a host like that allowed me to kind of get back to myself, anchor myself in like the wider facets of who I am because as a host as you know you kind of have to fill the space yeah that's what I would say about that it really actually kind of brought me back to myself it was hard but I did it
2: So you had this time as a host. You reconnected with yourself. You're mm. no longer just living in these high stakes decisions every day, but you get to play in all of these different spaces. And then last fall, you decide to leave, take this job at the Times. You're working in the opinion division. Very shortly on the heels of that announcement, uh, Audie Cornish left. Sam Sanders Noel left. King. All of these
3: hosts... Tanya Mosley. Tanya mm-hmm.
2: Mosley. All of these hosts, particularly a bunch of people of color who were hosting shows for the NPR, left. Yes. My question is, what the hell is going on at NPR?
3: So I am going to answer very carefully. And I'll tell you why. Because I love NPR. I spent 17 years of my career at NPR. I love all the people who I worked with and I, you know, have come to see that it does a real disservice to the sort of rank and file when someone who's walked out the door starts to kind of pontificate when they don't have skin in the game. I said everything I had to say while I was there. I was never one of the kind of wilting, you know, wallflowers that only found courage on the way out. And so I don't know that I have a lot more to say about that other than I left for many reasons. There wasn't just one. And some of those reasons had to do with, again, mental health. The pandemic hit me hard. I was incredibly depressed. I, from previous associations with mental health, realized that I needed to make a change. And so that was really the sort of driving force. Mm -hmm. But there's no question, and I will speak for myself, that there were pay equity issues. There were issues of just how valued I felt my contributions were. And so... The decision to leave is never really about one thing. It's about a lot of things. It was the time to go do something else, and this is a great thing to go and do. And so I felt like I was leaving on a high and -hmm. going to something great. And so, like, isn't that the kind of thing that is the way you want to do it if you're going to do it?
2: Yeah, totally. I actually really, like, respect that answer and agree with that sentiment of if you're going to say it, say it while you're there. Say it while
3: you're there. I found it really irritating when I was at, you know, at NPR And people would leave who had never said anything while they were there. And then once they're out the door, they start pontificating on Twitter. I don't like it. Where you can make change and affect change is when you're at an organization. You know, speaking up is really hard. But the purpose is not to damage the institution ever, because these institutions have huge value. I'm a huge believer in them. Do they all have to change all of them? I mean, sure, sure. (laughs) But like, are they of value in this world? Do we need them? I'm still a huge believer in that. Someone said to me, like, if they broke your bones, I'd always thought that they'd find NPR like sort of tattooed inside. And I was like, maybe they still will. And the New York Times now. I'm a big believer that we need these things in our society. And so like the purpose is never to damage the institution. I'm just one person who left for a whole bunch of reasons.
2: You've been part of a couple of institutions now, AP, NPR, Mm -hmm. New York Mm -hmm. Times. As someone who has spoken up when part of those institutions, do you think that they are A, genuinely getting better, and B, genuinely trying?
3: Yes and no. Like, yes, I think genuinely trying I think so because I think a lot of organizations have come to realize that this is sort of existential for them, that they can't keep doubling down on the same shrinking audience, and that they have to find new ways of engaging and bringing in different voices. And then once you bring in these voices, that's going to change the way things are done. But I think we're in the middle of this really big experiment you're seeing it play out all the time every day just look on any news headlines what's happening at the post what's happening you know at any news organization and you're seeing a lot of these forces kind of at play because the thing that's so hard is that we report on the news but we are also of the culture <laughs> And so the same things that are affecting the things that we report on are also affecting us inside. And so I don't look at it and say you're doing a terrible job, <laughs> because I remember being at NPR when the Me Too thing happened, and we were reporting on Me Too. We were experiencing it in the newsroom. I was experiencing it in my per- in my own personal life with friends and family. Suddenly talking about experiences that I didn't even know had happened. And so you were just battered on all sides while still having to kind of cover things. And so I think that we're, as a society, in a huge moment of realignment. That's what you're seeing. Everyone's litigating everything.
2: Do you find that energizing?
3: No, I find it exhausting sometimes. And I find it really hard to navigate because there's no certainty (laughs) and... I started this by saying I like to live in the gray, but gee, if there's certainty, it's nice, right? And there's no certainty anymore. And I've changed my viewpoint on what I think about so many things.
2: What's an example of that? What are you, what are you thinking of when you say that?
3: I'm kind of thinking of like the person who walked in as a kind of slightly feral foreign correspondent through the door of NPR to sit and helm a show of millions of people in America wondering what the hell I had to say to them. And then coming out the other side now on this other new experiment, trying to figure out how to move people to listen to things that they don't want to listen to or hear people in different ways. And I think that journey... Has been really, really hard and fraught and filled with pitfalls, and me kind of doubling back on myself, and at certain points being like, Man, I don't want to hear th- anything. Anymore, I'm tired of all the noise and cacophony and having real existential doubts about my role as a journalist in the world. Like, what the hell am I doing here? Why am I doing this job? Nobody cares. (laughs) Nobody likes me. Not even my own family, which is like a politically divided family. The only thing they can agree on is that they hate journalists. (laughs) And so you have these terrible moments of just like, this sucks. Who hasn't felt that these past two years during the pandemic and the political upheaval, who hasn't thought like this sucks?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've definitely thought this sucks. Yes. And so
3: that's what I'm saying. You just go through it and there's just like all these moments. And if you don't change, if you don't adapt, if your thinking isn't different at the end of that, then boy, that's depressing. Like it's not fun to go through it, but I would always say that if you, go cover a story and you already know what people are going to say, and you already have it in your head what the outcome is, and there's no surprise there, then that's kind of maybe a story that you shouldn't be working on. You have to allow the opportunity for there to be a journey and for there to be something at the end of it that is going to be like, wow, I really never thought that. I didn't think that I was coming here to report on that, Mm. but I guess that's what I'm here to report on.
2: We're talking on Wednesday, June 8th. Yes. And the show launches tomorrow. It does. Do you have some sense of what this project will change for you? What kind of journey you're about to go on?
3: No. That's the fun, right? That's the fun. That's why you do new things because you don't know where they're gonna end up. That was always the reason why I did everything. Like, I don't know what's gonna happen. Yay. (laughs) That's like an
2: exciting feeling for you?
3: Sure, I mean, I don't know. It could not go well. And that's terrifying. And no, I would be very sad and feel terrible if that were true. But I've already learned so much. Like, I'm already a different person in the past six months doing this than I was when I came. And so like each time you're kind of building more things. I'm a better storyteller. I'm a better journalist. Coming to opinion, I've learned to think in a different way. Um, Learning narrative, which I'm learning, frankly, um, has made me think about the stories that I tell and how I tell them and who are the people that I want to tell them about Hmm. in different ways. And so like already I would say, man, that's the price of admission. Like already. I would say like for me personally, the New York Times might not feel so. (laughs) But I do. I feel like I've already really kind of learned something cool and gotten to do something cool. And hopefully I'll get to build on it and it'll change over time.
2: One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you was I had heard your – voice on the radio for years and years and i imagined that you know there was a challenge in joining a totally like established thing like a show that had a personality and its own way of operating and its own relationship with an audience and also this like huge guaranteed audience and then this thing you're doing now feels like on the opposite end of that spectrum there's no rules there's not even rules about like objectivity that you had to play by before it can be what you want and also you know i know you have this fantastic team working on it but the experience that people are going to have is that it's you i don't totally have a question in that but i guess it was basically like
3: is it more exposed am i more exposed well
2: that- i i mean no i think actually the thing that i'm interested in is whether that lack of constraints is exciting or terrifying or both
3: so the thing that i found interesting at npr was i you know i learned how to be a host i'd never been that that took you know i cried every day for the first year literally because it was yeah literally i would come home and cry because i was like this is super hard (laughs) this is super hard like respect to the host man it's not easy
2: can can you articulate why because my guess is that that surprised some people who are listening
3: Oh, because you're exposed in a really different way. People want to know you in a really different way. Like people knew me as like a, a voice telling them terrible things from faraway countries. And then, you know, hopefully beautiful and fun things as well from Latin America and other things, but I was known in a particular space. And then when you become a host, they want to know about your dog and they want to know all sorts of things about who you are in a way that feels authentic. And at the same time, I really wanted to change the sound of NPR writ large, the kinds of voices that we were centering, the stories that we were telling, and the way we were telling those stories. And this was all happening during the Trump administration. So, you know, that was a tall order. Mm. And so, you know, when I say I like to sort of have mountains to climb, I was setting myself up there for like not one mountain, but tons of them. And it was really, really hard. And also there's like a craft that you have to learn. Yeah. The same for this. Like, I am learning a craft right now. I'm building on the stuff that I already knew, but I'm learning a craft. And so that's hard.
2: Is it a different kind of interviewing?
3: Yeah. It's a totally different kind of interviewing. It's a completely different kind of interviewing because the way that we do it and that I had to learn how to do it is that we are... Not only starting the clock in a particular place, but really trying to figure out where we're going. At NPR, the interviews, first of all, are a lot shorter. But secondly, what they're doing there, and I learned how to do, you try to find these moments. I can feel us doing it here, right? Like these cadence moments where you're, you're speaking about something and then you want to excite the listener, give them a burst of something to kind of get their ear back in in case their attentions wandered. And I'm not saying I'm not doing this now, but what this is more is like one person and their journey. And it's very intentionally about one thing, right? It's about one particular thing. And so the first one, which you've heard, is about one woman's not abortion story. And other ones are going to be about Things like parents' rights, you know, the long roots of that that people don't know and how that person's life is intersected with it. There's going to be a lot of other discussions, but you have to be very intentional in those discussions about where you're going at every particular place because it becomes like a puzzle. Because if not, people can get lost. And so it's a harder type of interviewing. I have found it to be a much harder type of interview.
2: There's like a performance element of it too, because when you're having people walk through a story in the way that you're doing on the show, like I'm thinking of the not abortion episode that I listened to, there are beats in the story that you need to ask about that you very obviously know already. Right. And it feels to me like there's a real art of making that feel genuine and not like bullshit.
3: So it's funny. Often what we're doing is is a little bit of performance in every bit of broadcasting, you know?
2: Unlike this, where there's no performance whatsoever. No performance whatsoever.
3: Yeah. We are totally like no performance <laughs> at all. Zero, nothing. No. But so I've been working with Lisa Tobin, who is formerly of The Daily, and she's been helping us launch this podcast.
2: One of the all-time greats.
3: One of the all-time grades, yes, indeed. And so that it has been an absolute privilege and honor to work with her. I can't even stress that enough. But it's funny. She has this thing that she says, which is you have to walk into the interview knowing what you knew before you did all the research. So you're still Lulu, who might know things about whatever, abortion and et cetera. But it can't be that you're walking into the interview knowing – all these things that you have had to research in order to be an informed interviewer. Because if not, then you're stepping on the toes of other people's story. Hmm. And so I struggle to make sense of that. And there are exceptions to that, because sometimes you really do have to be like, actually, I know a thing. I'm going to say it. Yeah. Here's the thing I'm going to say. But I do think it helps to kind of take a step back and just let the story unfold with the person telling it. Because if not, then you know, you're know you doing a thing which we do in news a lot, which is say, okay, I'm gonna give you all this information right now. <laughs> and then let the other person say the thing.
2: There are times when you gotta do it because that's what's gonna be best for the story and there's other times where you can't fake it.
3: Yeah, and so that's it. It sounds like a simple concept, this idea of where do people's ideas come from. This wasn't my idea for the show, by the way. This idea existed, and they wanted me to do mm. it. But it's been really hard. It's been tricky.
2: Are you excited for tomorrow?
3: Yeah. It goes out into the world. But I, something else someone told me, which I think is true, which is like nobody ever remembers the first episode of anything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank God that is true of the, That's long what I mean. for, the long-form podcast. The first episode of the long-form podcast deeply I'm gonna go
3: back and listen to it but this is what I mean like I'm excited because it goes out and lives in the world and I've been waiting to go out and do my next thing because a lot of people have been like hey Lulu when's your podcast coming out but I am also cognizant that I wanted to expand and grow and change and you know be more fully itself
2: thanks so much for explaining your life
3: thank you I've really really enjoyed it
2: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to her. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who handled the show notes. Thanks to our friends at Box, with whom we make the show. And thanks so much to Lulu. Her podcast is called First Person. Go check it out. We'll see you next week.